Oh, yeah. So there's something I've been saying uh, in the individual meetings all day, and so now I'll say it to everybody. Quite an important point. And that is we've spent pretty close to the last two weeks now focusing in terms of shamatha on mindfulness of breathing. And now for the next week, we'll be really going, in terms of the morning sessions, really focusing again and again on the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. One week from today, then we'll go into awareness of awareness. So I have this all planned out. Um, so we'll cover, it, we'll cover that spectrum, I, you know, my, the three, three methods that I have been teaching for quite a long time now. Uh, having said that, what I would suggest is that when I'm lo- uh, leading the guided meditations in the morning, that uh, you go along with it. You know, whatever I'm teaching, just get, get in stride and do it for 24 minutes. But then when you're back to the other 22 hours of the day, when you're not here, then I would suggest follow the practice that you find most beneficial. So some of you may have already found that mindfulness of breathing really works for you, and maybe one or two of the three methods, maybe all three methods. And if that's working for you and you're really getting into the flow of it, you're getting benefit, and what's benefit? It's so clear, it's transparent. Relaxation, stability, vividness. If that's happening, then you know why change? You're very welcome to just continue with the flow of that, because that's a good basis. That was the method the Buddha taught at the beginning of his great discourse on the four applications of mindfulness. He didn't teach all these other methods of shamatha. He just taught that one. So clearly, that has to be good enough, right? Having said that, not everybody likes mindfulness of breathing. Not everybody gets the maximum benefit from it. And some people, as soon as they're introduced to settling the mind, some people just take to it immediately. And so, if that's the case, by all means, go ahead and emphasize that one, you know? Or I'm sure some of you, whether by way of podcasts or having been in earlier retreats, if you've already been... um, introduced to awareness of awareness, you're really drawn to it, you don't have to wait. You know, go ahead and jump right in. And so in terms of your daily shamatha practice, this I would suggest is kind of like a base camp. That is, a base camp if you're climbing a very high mountain, you'll m- maybe go up to 5,000, 6,000 meters, and there's your, there's your new base, and then you make expeditions up from there. Shamatha is your base camp, right? It's your base camp. So whatever your base camp is, now you can use mindfulness of breathing and settling the mind, and you may alternate between the two. I call that balancing earth and wind. So it can be a nice balance. Mindfulness of breathing, really good for relaxation and stability. Settling the mind, really good for clarity. So having back-to-back sessions. First, mindfulness of breathing, probably. Then settling the mind can be a very nice combination. Or balancing earth and sky. First, mindfulness of breathing, then awareness of awareness. All of these are good. So this afternoon, of course, we're going to return now to the close application of mindfulness of feelings, specific feelings, mental feelings, psychological feelings, but we're still keeping it very simple. That is, we have a wide array of emotions, very rich, very textured, very diverse. But when we're focusing on vedana, feeling, then it's just pleasure. I like it, I don't like it, neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Just keep it there. Next week, when we go into the close application of mindfulness of the mind, then we'll cover all the other emotions, thoughts, memories, everything else. But for this week, we're really focusing on this kind of this prime directive, this deep impulse that we share with all sentient beings. So there again, you know, it's, it's easy to feel greater empathy with some people than others. I think it's just true for all of us. And then it's easier to feel, probably for most of us, it's easier to feel empathy with mammals than it is reptiles. You know, they're just more like us. But reptiles, too, are sentient beings. Easier with, with, a, with a dog than a, with a cockroach. You know? Different. 
but they're still sentient beings. And so if you're saying, you look at a cockroach and say, you know, you know what, you and I don't have a whole lot in common. Number one, maybe more common than you like to think. <laughs> but whatever we like to think or don't like to think, there it is. The cockroach doesn't like pain and likes to eat, you know, likes pleasure. So there it is, empathy all the way through. So there's, you know, we're, we're, we're lingering here for a whole week, a whole week, my goodness, on feelings. Because there it is. There's our common ground with all sentient beings. And even with arhats and buddhas, they too have feelings, right? And so there it is, establishing this cognitive basis for empathy, which is the basis for loving kindness, compassion, and bodhicitta. And on we go from there. So base camp. As we venture into the expeditions of vipassana, to the body, now to feelings, and then on beyond that, know that you can always come back to your base camp. Always come, you can always come back to just straight shamatha practice. And with this practice we're, we're, we're returning to today, uh, this settling the mind in its natural state, as you well know now, although it is presented as a shamatha practice, nevertheless it's right there on the border, right? Because there it is. It's so easy to start getting insights into impermanence, just for starters, as you're attending moment by moment by moment and just saying, whoa, there's nothing static here. Even the space of the mind, if you really attend to it closely, you may find that, number one, it's not black. And number two, it's not a sheer absence of something. It's a real space. It's a real space out of which stuff emerges, into which things evolve. It's three-dimensional. And you may actually find, oh, it's got kind of a, a vibrational quality, a kind of like an excited quality to it, like a plenum, like a plasma, something like, ooh, jazzy, right? And so, as you're just resting in the settling the mind in this natural state as a shamatha practice, then it's good to know what it's for. Have that very much consciously in mind when you're taking it as a shamatha practice. What are you seeking to do? And I'll tell you, that's what I'm here for, right? You're seeking to get your best approximation of observing your mind, your woman's mind, man's mind, specific, old, young, and all that, that specific psyche, you're developing your best approximation to observe your mind with all the objective appearances and subjective impulses, desires, emotions, and so forth, to observe your mind from the perspective of substrate consciousness. Substrate consciousness. Which is knowing. Bear in mind, substrate consciousness is not just spacing out. Absolutely not. That would be substrate. When you're, when you're, and we'll come back to this later, probably next week, but it is possible for the substrate consciousness to slip into substrate. And that's what it's like when you've had general anesthesia. When you've had general anesthesia, you don't know anything, right? Nothing. You don't, just zero. You're not absolutely unconscious, but all you have is implicit consciousness. But you don't know anything, right? But then... Hopefully, sooner or later, the anesthesia wears off. The substrate, con substrate consciousness comes out of the substrate, and then out of the substrate consciousness emerges kind of like a sequence, and there you are back to waking reality again. So it's gone very, very dormant. Well, when we're practicing the settling the mind, we certainly don't want to go into, this, into the state of unknowing of the substrate, because that's just not useful. Right? But we are slipping into that state of knowing of the substrate consciousness, which, of course, when you fully realize it, it's blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. 
Well, we can't just turn on bliss. But consciousness, by nature, is luminous. You don't have to turn that one on or turn it off. It's just by nature luminous. And what we're seeking to do here is to observe your own mind from a non-conceptual perspective that nevertheless is knowing. Right? So as I gaze at Birgit's hair, I don't have to think about it. I don't have to label it or anything. I can just look at it and I'm knowing. I'm knowing something. And that's whether or not I have language to describe it. Something's coming in, so it's appearing, and the Tibetan word is ngepa, ascertaining. So both things are happening, and that's before any articulation. So that's the type of immediate, nonverbal knowing, one could say intuitive, that we're, we're, we're resting in and kind of just getting into a flow of just an immediate, nonverbal, now quietly conceptual, yes, but really quietly conceptual, intuitive and quite immediate knowing. So now, what's, once again, what's the purpose of settling the mind in its natural state as a shamatha method? Its purpose, well, of course, relaxation, stability, vividness, but what's the purpose of that specific method is you're actually observing your mind dissolve into the substrate, substrate consciousness. Observing all appearances dissolving into Substrate. I can always count on him for the right answer. He's been around for a while. Exactly. All the appearances dissolving into the substrate. That's the space of the mind. And all your subjective, appear- all your subjective impulses, tanya, dissolving into substrate consciousness. Yes, substrate consciousness. Yeah. The subjective impulses, the mental processes uh, of this elaborated man's mind, woman's mind, psyche, coarse mind, all that now just getting simplified and dissolving back into substrate consciousness, which has no gender, no ethnicity, not old, not young, and not even human, but still knowing, still knowing. So that's what you're watching happen. And it's kind of like a really, really interesting preparation for dying lucidly, but happily. That is, settling the mind in its natural state is not just one happy day after another because you're dredging up a lot of stuff, so all kinds of stuff will come up. It'll be on, a diff- on occasion a rough ride, but you're doing it voluntarily, and you have all kinds of ways to make it a smoother ride, the four measurables, refuge, all kinds of nice things to help, just help you get through the rough, rough paths, including having sp- Dharma friends and dessert. <laughs> Anything that helps, you know? And the sports, sports facilities, swimming, not a bad idea. And so... But overall, as you just get into the flow of it, go deeper, 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 then the blissful quality becomes more and more evident, and then you, there you are. You're watching your mind dissolve into the substrate consciousness, which is exactly what will happen, lucidly or unlucidly, when you die. But here you're doing it with, let alone is there no detriment to your health, if anything, this is really good for your health, and, and as we see now from the Shamatha Project, may actually increase your lifespan. So you get quality and quantity. That's not bad. Right? Quality and quantity, good combo. So that's what that's for, is you're attending to it very closely, but not with the primary motive being to gain insight into the nature of the emotions, the images, and so forth and so on, but rather to develop stabil- relaxation, stability, vividness as you watch your mind dissolve into the substrate consciousness. And again, the perspective from which you are viewing your mind gradually dissolving, is your closest approximation 
to the substrate consciousness, which is clear and non-conceptual and knowing. As soon as you start thinking about the mind, then that's no longer a good approximation of the substrate consciousness. That's just the mind thinking about the mind. So it's totally caught up in coarse mind, right? So that's why we keep on coming back. Whatever thoughts arise, you observe them, but you don't conceptualize them. You don't get caught into the dialogue, the commentary, the rumination. You observe it quietly and as much as you can, non-conceptually, until eventually your mind has dissolved into the substrate consciousness and that richly populated, or uh, how do you say, populated, Dharmadhatu, the domain of your mind, has now been simplified, reduced, unadorned, unelaborated, unconfigured. So it's reduced to the alaya, the substrate. The Dharmadhatu, the relative Dharmadhatu, space of the mind, now is now nakedly appearing as alaya, substrate, as your richly adorned, heavily configured psyche, your mind, your chitta, is now reduced down to bare bones, very slender, which Penjian Losujuki Gansen, the great Penjian Lama, who was the fifth, fifth Dalai Lama's tutor, he said, now you have ascertained the essential nature of your mind. He's not talking emptiness, and he's not talking rikpa. But he's saying, now you know what mind is all about. Now you know it nakedly. This is all the elaborations of your mind, your memories, your personal history, all that stuff of what makes your mind your mind. All very well. But you know, in your next life, you won't even remember what you had this life. So that couldn't be essential to know thyself, which means, oh yes, I know my personal history, I know about my character, my personality, my thoughts. You know, it's a short story, let's get over it. <laughs> and we don't know how short a story it is. Right? So it's not insignificant to know thyself on that relative short story plane, the one chapter. Not insignificant. But after all, would you like to see, you know, where's it all coming from? What's the keeper? What carries on? If, if this is true, and of course, I'm not trying to brainwash anybody, unlike a lot of other people. But if this is true, of course, it can be checked. That's the beauty of it. There's not one scientific theory about the nature of consciousness that can be checked. But where's it can actually test it? Because they're simply assuming materialism. They're not testing it. They're just saying, well, let's just assume it. That's fine if you're a theologian. You know, we don't question God. We just assume God. And now we build everything on our God belief, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But I don't think science is at its best if it has unquestioned assumptions. That's exactly what science is not supposed to do. So here we are, no unquestioned assumptions, including Buddhist assumptions. But there it is, the hypothesis, it's that substrate consciousness that carries through from lifetime to lifetime. And my goodness, if you can ascertain that, I don't mean believe in it, or simply have faith in it. Lama Zubhadrambachu was once asked, is it necessary to believe in reincarnation to achieve enlightenment? He said, no. You need to know it. Right? Fine to believe, but, you know, hey, if, if, if this is something that can be known and not just believe because the Lama said so or the Buddha said so, then let's go for it and put it to the test of experience. Well, what an incredible thing. If this can be known, and it's just shamatha, it's not even vipassana, let alone Dzogchen or Vajrayana, any of that really high stuff. It's just the shamatha. You know? And that's enough to actually ascertain substrate consciousness, which is that depth of consciousness that carries on from lifetime to lifetime, and is the repository of all your memories, experiences, karmic imprints. That's kind of a big deal for a little poor little old shamatha. You know, such a little wimp, you know, kindergarten stuff. But that's a pretty good kindergarten. So 
their shamatha. To view and to be able to explore the nature of the mind from the perspective of having achieved shamatha, having your mind dissolve into the substrate consciousness. My favorite metaphor is the Hubble telescope. Now, there are better telescopes being launched soon, I think. Um, but it's a good one. It hasn't quite used up its time. And I saw a great documentary on it in Sydney about a year ago, that great big 3D, 3D uh, cinema right there on Darling Harbor. It was really quite well done. It's only 45 minutes, but it was well, very well done. And it's the, that Hubble telescope is 300 miles up, up, up in the atmosphere, of course, going around the Earth. And so when it looks out into deep space, what it's skipping, what, you're not, what you don't have to look through, of course, is all the atmospheric distortions of the atmosphere with the smog and everything else of our, of our planet. You're, you're close enough to... It's basically access to the first jhana. <laughs> it's access to deep space. It's not really deep space. It's only 300 miles up. But it's access to deep space. Because you look out from that perspective, and all the junk is behind you. And it's like, whoa, that's pretty clear. You know, and you're seeing into galaxies 12 billion light years away. That's not bad. Right. And so that's looking into the deep space of the mind. Well, we'll be doing that. That is, we're doing our best approximation. When we move next week, one week from today, into awareness of awareness, we'll do our best to adopt the same perspective of viewing from the perspective of a substrate consciousness, but then probing right inwards into the deep space of the mind, right into the substrate, and if we can, penetrate right through it, go into warp drive. <laughs> and that is penetrate right through the substrate into rikpa. Then you've gone into hyperspace. <laughs> of course, I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's fun. Because it's really true. I mean, that's where you go into the deep space, hyperspace of the mind that is beyond. It's beyond space, beyond time. Okay? And so that's when you're taking that Hubble telescope and just turning into deep space and amazing things that they have discovered with that telescope. But here, when we're going from the shamatha, and I'll, I'll stop quickly now, when we're going right now in this next session, going from the shamatha to the vipassana, we're again doing our best to approximate the perspective of substrate consciousness but instead of turning it inwards to probe into the substrate, into the ultimate dharmadhatu, into rikpa, dharmakaya, and all of that, we get to that vantage point that's quite free of distortion. Subjective bias, I like, I don't like, all the, and all the labels and all that kind of stuff, viewing it from this rather distilled perspective. But instead of turning it to the deep space of consciousness and multiple dimensions of consciousness, it's something they never do with a Hubble telescope, it would probably re be ridiculous to do it. But take that Hubble telescope and go, and look right back at the Earth. It's probably a, a crazy idea for that telescope. I doubt that it's any good for that. But we're doing something like that. You get to this very clear, very distilled, uncontaminated, relatively unconfigured state, and then you turn it right back on the mind. You say, okay, mind, now I'm going to look at you objectively. That is not from within my emotions and my hopes and my fears and my personal history. I'm from this perspective of substrate consciousness or my best approximation. It's really, in a way, it's really scientific. That is, it's really a perspective that is quite free of subjective bias. Right? And since you're viewing it non-conceptual, then it's not biased with the limitations and strengths of Italian 
or German or French or Latin or Sanskrit. Every language has its strengths and weaknesses. It's true for all of them. But also, as soon as you're looking through language, then you know you've configured it by way of that language. Whereas if you're viewing non-conceptually, then you're free of the limitations of all the language, and you're just getting it, boom, straight on, direct, and relatively unmediated. Right? Okay, that's enough. So now we're going to go back, settling the mind in its natural state. That'll be our base camp. And then from that, we'll make, be making our expeditions into closely applying mindfulness to mental feelings. And having said that, this is inclusive. That is, we're not going to be trying to do single-pointedly on the space of the mind when we're doing the Vipassana. Because when you experience feelings come up, and again, not just pleasure, pain, and difference, when you experience that coming up, you may very well simultaneously experience sensations in the body. My heart is heavy with grief. Uh, I'm, my heart is filled with joy. My, my, you know, so you may feel grief and joy somatically, some sensations there. So now that we are not doing, we, when we move beyond shamatha and vipassana, it's perfectly fine to attend to both the mental feelings of pleasure, pain, and difference, and also the correlated somatic sensations. Look at the whole system and see how they're interrelated. Okay, enough. Get in a comfortable or uncomfortable position, whatever you like. Settle your body in its natural state, in your respiration, in its natural rhythm. And for a short time, calm and balance your mind by way of mindfulness of breathing.
now according to the classic instructions on settling the mind in its natural state. You let your eyes be open. They may be wide open if you wish, partially open. Or when you're just beginning, if you find it quite distracting, go ahead and keep them closed. Then as you get more familiar with the practice, then try opening them, for example, in a dark room and get used to the practice with the eyes open. So I'll speak more generically. Let your eyes be at least partially open and vacantly rest your gaze in the space in front of you. while single-pointedly directing your mindfulness, your interest, your attention on the space of the mind and whatever arises within that domain. Remember that the first challenge in this practice is to experientially distinguish between the stillness of your own awareness and the movements of the mind, of thoughts, images, and so on. You can experience the stillness of your awareness only when there's a core sense of relaxation, of ease, of letting go. Resting your awareness without distraction and without grasping. order to clearly find the target, the space of the mind. If you're new to the practice, you might find it helpful, as we did before, to very deliberately give yourself a target, a discursive thought, or a mental image. Generate it, focus on it. Allow it to fade back into the space of the mind, and then be quiet, keeping your attention right where it lies, and see what comes up next, all of its own accord.
It's very easy to be carried away by thoughts, just caught up in mind-wandering or rumination, as soon as you recognize that with your faculty of introspection. But your first response is to be loosen up. Then without banishing the thought, just release your grasping onto it or onto its referent. And then very gently, happily, return your attention to the present moment to whatever is arising in the space of your mind right now. And observe it without judgment, without seeking to modify it, without identifying with it. Observe it without distraction and without grasping. Now as you sustain this flow of mindfulness of the objective appearances that arise in the space of the mind, be aware also of the feelings, how you're experiencing the mind, how you're feeling altogether, mentally, psychologically. Recognize the feeling of neutrality, just feeling calm. But if you become bored, uneasy, restless, note the gradations of dukkha, of mental unhappiness, as well as the occurrence of pleasure that arise in the mind.
If at times you want to come down to kind of a lower altitude, just to get a bit more grounding, you can always come back to mindfulness of breathing for a little while. A bit more tangible, easier to engage with. And then return to the space of the mind as soon as you're ready. Then you may start running experiments. Feelings don't just happen to you. You can deliberately generate them. So why not start out with a, with a pleasant feeling? You may bring to mind someone who you love, the very thought of whom brings forth a happy feeling, or remember some happy occasion, some pleasant memory or some inspiring fantasy or wish. Generate a thought, an image, a memory. And as the feeling arises, observe it. Observe it with a question. Is it permanent, impermanent, static, or changing? Closely apply mindfulness to feelings. Those that arise spontaneously, and those that you deliberately generate.
So let's go back and forth. I'll read one. We'll go to the everybody live here and back to something red. Go back and forth. Oh, yeah. Okay, here's one from Sandra. There's Sandra. Is, is it possible to have a non I think I've done that one. Yes, we've done that one. Okay, jolly good. That one's taken care of. That was easy. I'll read one more. Here's from Paul. No, no, Paul. There's Paul. Okay, you spoke about quantum physics and the number zero, no, and Indian dimension. Quite so. There are connections between... There are connections between the number zero and the philosophy of emptiness. Yeah, there are. It's in Kala Chakra, in the Kala Chakra system. Uh, and I won't elaborate on that, but yeah, because Kala Chakra, of, of, of all the systems within Buddhism, Chakra Samvada, Theravada, Zen, Chan, and so forth, Kala Chakra is the one that most explicitly brings in mathematics. And there's a very good reason for that, because that's where Buddhist astronomy is, and astrology, both. But there's a lot of mathematics there. And so they actually incorporate that. Um, so it's an interesting area. And then there's a remarkable man. I never met him. I missed him just by a matter of months. His name was Franklin Merrill Wolfe, an American. And he was, I would have to say, he was a very accomplished yogi. He had very, very deep insight. I believe he had direct, some deep insight into Rikpa itself. Quite remarkable man. And he was mathematician, as well as a very well-trained Western philosopher. Uh, and he had some very interesting things to say about mathematics. So Franklin Merrill Wolf, you Google him when the time is ripe, quite interesting. So, so are, Buddhist philosophers the, uh, are Buddhist philosophers like Nagarjuna, quantum physicists of the mind? Uh, so, I mean, speaking very poetically or very uh, metaphorically, one could say that. Um, in the sense, in the following sense, of course, it's just by parallel. But it's a very meaningful parallel. And we've seen this repeatedly now uh, among really world-class physicists. So it's easy to find some New Age physicists. You can find New Age Buddhists and New Age anything. And by that, I mean just people who don't, are not thinking very critically. They're not rigorous. Um, just soft, bit like that. So New Agey. Um, but people of the caliber of Anton Seininger, Stephen Chu was a Nobel laureate. He was at one of the meetings with the Dalai Lama. Um, and I could give other names, but they're really world-class people. And one after another, they say, yeah, this is a significant parallel. This is a really significant parallel, quantum mechanics and Madhyamaka, that right there. Uh, and the parallel is a pretty strong one. And so I've made a, a number of allusions now, or references to Sautrantika. And I said, it makes sense, it's really logical, it's practical, uh, and it continues to be practical even as you get deeper, deeper insight. Um, and there are some unquestioned assumptions on which Satrantika is based that from a Madhyamic perspective are just flat out wrong. And that is, for example, and I'll give away the plot right now, all these, all these real phenomena that you can directly perceive that have causal efficacy, Satrantika simply assumes something obvious, something commonsensical, something it almost seems like be, you'd have to be an idiot to question. And that is, it's really there. So shall I bring up my place again? You know, I mean, how many times do I need to hit myself on the head to say, hey, you know, there really is something there. 
intrinsically by its own nature. It's really there, and you can call it whatever you like. You can conceptualize it any way you like. But when it's all is said and done, it has causal efficacy. And it has causal efficacy because it's really there, as my head is really there. And that's why you're hearing this sound, because it's really there. And it doesn't matter what you say or what you think or how you label it. It's still there, right? And so that's kind of a nice bunk you on the head metaphysical realism, that all these conditioned phenomena exist by their own inherent nature independently of conceptual designation. Mere thoughts, mere labels. They're really there. And if they weren't really there, this is Antarctica. But see how sensible this sounds. Like almost, if you doubt this, you just must be stupid. right? If they weren't really there, already there, by their own inherent nature, they couldn't do anything. They would have no causal efficacy. right? How could they? How could this make a noise on my head if it's not already really there? You know? So, boy, that's hard to doubt. That's hard to doubt. Just like from a Newtonian perspective, that matter, that this is really moving at a certain velocity. It's not a matter of choice or anything like that. This is really moving at a real velocity. And it has a real mass. And it has a certain energy. And time passes. Time absolutely passes. Every day is 24 hours, and it follows right after the last one. And every minute is, a, is as long as every other minute. So the, the assumptions of absolute space, time, matter, and energy on which all of, of classical physics is based, it's kind of like, how could you doubt that? And it's all objectively real. It's absolutely out there. Okay? And how you can doubt that is being as brilliant as Einstein and, having the, and as brilliant as Max Planck, but also having some pretty super technology. Because you need to have really good technology to put Max Planck's hypothesis of quanta to the test of experience. Or to be able to, you know check out the measurement problem, quantum mechanics, and so forth. So what I'm getting at here is that there is a pretty meaningful parallel here. The absolute inherent nature of all these conditioned phenomena in Sautrantika, absolute space, time, matter, and energy, because that's what physics is all about, and it's really there from its own side. And Einstein, for all of his brilliance, he believed that, that the world is really out there, even though space, time, they're not absolute, but even Einstein felt they are already out there independent of any measurement. And of course, independent of any conceptual framework and all of that. He was a metaphysical realist. And he still believed there was something of a God's eye perspective. The God of Spinoza. Not God with a long beard or any cartoons. But, you know, very sophisticated notion of God. And so, if that's a meaningful parallel, and as you can, as you can see, I'm quite persuaded it is, well, then the quantum physicists come in, and then along with relativity or the fusion of special relativity quantum mechanics, that is, quantum field theory, and they demonstrate those assumptions are simply totally wrong. It's not, it's not, in many contexts, it's not obvious that they're wrong. In many contexts, it doesn't really matter that they're wrong. But when you really know it's true, those are wrong, right? And so those we call, say, so we'll call them quantum physicists. Well, likewise, Nagarjuna. And then we have the whole list of others, Chantakirti, Aryadeva, Tsongkhapa, Dujum Lingba for that matter, Dalai Lama for that matter. Yeah, they are seeing through the unquestioned assumptions of absolutism, of reification, that were unquestioned in Sautrantika, 
And they said, yeah, there's still a lot of really practical good stuff in Sautrantika. That's why we continue to teach our young monks Sautrantika. So you really get, your, you know, get that context, learn it. It's very logical. You learn how to debate and think rationally. And then you demolish it in four years. If you're getting a classic monastic education, it's four years where you just study Madhyamaka for four years straight. And you're just bringing out, you know, just one nuclear weapon after another just to blow out all the reification of the Satrantika and everything, including even Chittamatra, the mind only, which is still reifying mind. Saying everything else is just an illusion, but mind is real. Yeah, think again. And then nukes that one too. Okay? But that's a lot of hard work. Just like quantum mechanics, it's a lot of hard work. It wasn't just some clever guy dreaming up some cool, not cool idea. So yes, in this regard, sure. Poetically speaking, metaphorically speaking, Nagarjuna, right through the Dalai Lama, another brilliant uh, contemplative philosophers of the modern world. Yeah. So how is it possible for His Holiness Dalai Lama to debate with quantum physicists? Good question. And it really needs to be approached with a little bit of nuance, or maybe a lot, but at least a little bit. And that is in terms of all of the mathematics, the Schrodinger wave equation, just for starters, the Schrodinger wave equation. And then, you know, what, rele what relevance are Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism? What relevance Newton's equations for mechanics? There was just no dialogue there. There's just no dialogue. That is, physics to Buddhism, physics as physics, there's no dialogue. Because Buddhism doesn't have the technology, doesn't have the mathematics. So that's not a meaningful dialogue, right? But then when the physicists, people like Anton Seiner, David Finkelstein, Stephen Chu, George Greenstein, and there are others as well. Way back when, who was it that came up with the, uh, it's sound, that um, Charles Bell, Charles Bell. His whole name met Charles Bell. Charles Bell's theorem, it's a big one. Anybody who knows quantum mechanics, he met Charles Bell. And he met David Bohm, had multiple conversations with David Bohm. So he met really some of, the, some of the best in the whole world. Even that wonderful man, that German physicist, uh, von, 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 von Weizsäcker. Yeah, von Weizsäcker. Uh, he, had, he met with him also. Brilliant man. And also deep philosopher. Really deep. I've read his work. Really amazing. So it's met, Holiness met with all of these people. And it wasn't just to talk about tea. You know. And it wasn't to talk about the equations and the technology and so forth. It's like, what's really happening? And these, these, everyone I mentioned, they are either at least really good or they're great. You know. And that all of them are, because I, I haven't met all of them, but I've met a number of them. They're really interested in what's true. And so what is true? And so this was, the, this was the point of conjunction. What does it really mean? What's really true? What's the role of the observer? And this kind of thing. <coughs> so they've had multiple very meaningful conversations on that level. Foundations of quantum mechanics. What are the implications of relativity theory? What's the role of the observer? What's the nature of measurement? And so... One friend of mine I just, just spoke with recently, he's a physicist. Oh, he's a physicist. Maybe it was in London. Didn't we have a physicist there? Yeah, we did. Sure. Sure. Harat um, Atmanswacher, um, another good physicist, very good physicist. And I, I believe it was he who said, the interpretations of quantum mechanics are still open. That is, there's no consensus on, okay, now what does it really mean? But where is there consensus? Is there any consensus from the breakthrough, the second revolution in physics? And the answer is yes, there is a consensus, one thing we now know indisputably, and that is atomism is wrong. And that is, does the physical world boil down to little hard nuggets 
of atoms that are inherently real, existing in and of themselves, all by themselves. And he said, quantum mechanics has shown that's not true. So what is true? What's the role of measurement? What's the role of observer? Well, okay, then they have a lot of interpretations. But we can, if you've understood quantum mechanics, you cannot go back to 19th century metaphysical realism of thinking atoms are absolutely these little hard BBs, or little hard nuggets of stuff with a little hard nucleus and a little thing that's going around it like a little orbit. That whole notion, that went out with, um, oh, what was his name? The Danish one. The Danish quantum physicist. Uh, 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 yeah, Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr. Yeah, he came up with the last theory that still could take that seriously, and that was the little electrons jumping tracks. It's a very nice theory. It's false. It was found out to be false within about two years. But it still looked like you could imagine. There's a nucleus and the little orbits. They, 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 they instantly pop from this orbit and that orbit and they, as they absorb and emit photons. It's a nice image, and it's very good for junior high school physics because you can imagine it. But it's also false. Okay? And that was the last one. Ever since then, quantum physicists said, you can't imagine it. You can talk about it, and you can do the equations, and you can make very good predictions. But you can't imagine it. That was the last attempt to imagine literally what an atom looks like. So atomism, that, they're really, that there's a real picture of what's really happening, and it's a little nucleus nugget with little nuggets going around it in orbits, not true. So areas of agreement, that's an area of agreement, and that is that these atoms are not inherently existent by their own intrinsic nature. Agreement there. What you didn't ask is what area of disagreement. And it's a very interesting area of disagreement. And I, what I saw was open-mindedness on both sides, because I was interpreter for a number of these meetings. And it was just delightful. I just love it when really open-minded Buddhists meet with really open-minded scientists. It's not always the case. But when it is, it's a celebration. And I've seen that repeatedly. What I found is the Dalai Lama is always open-minded. I've never once, never once seen him dogmatic. Not once. On occasion, there have been scientists, yes. And then scientists who are not dogmatic and open, and that's just a celebration. The other ones, not so interesting. So, this point, and that is, I mentioned earlier, uranium-234 spits out photons, and the general understanding is that it's not causally determined. That is, it just happens spontaneously, without any prior trigger to spit out the photon, to emit the photon at a particular time. And why? Because they can't find any. They can't find any. It just, they look and they, it's not to be seen. So this came up in reference to, it might have been you, um, Steph, about just, what was it, it was several days ago, but just thoughts that seemed to just emerge out of nowhere. And I gave this analogy, that there you are sitting and minding your own business, and then, I like purple. Who said that and why? And what purple? And why did you say it now? And then, I like purple. Dirty socks. <laughs> Warthog sniffing. Okay. Is there some crazy man behind my mind? He's just throwing little you know, junk at me? Or Where is that coming from? And you really get that. It's called stochastic. And that it's an interesting point. I'll give a little kind of commentary on the settling the mind. And that is when you're still, there's still a fair amount of grasping. You're attending, trying not to grasp, but you're still grasping. Then you do find that one image tends to kind of connect over to another one, and that connects over to another one. And the 
the string that holds those beads together. It's called free association in psychoanalysis. This reminds me of this, and that reminds me of that, and so forth and so on. It's grasping that goes from mom to apple pie to apples to trees to freeze to ice to water to oil to hamburgers to... But those are all linked, right? And by grasping, just one thing led to another. But when you really go mellow, you go soft, you go plasma that is not frozen, and you're really just going into that settling the mind, its natural state, there's no string to hold them together. So then it's football and whatever. It's just... And you're looking, what caused that? And you just may not be able to see it. Now, the Buddhist view, right through Madhyamaka, is that phenomena do not arise independence on nothing whatsoever. That is, if at 2 o'clock exactly a molecule of uranium or a cluster of uranium spits out a photon at exactly 2 o'clock, that means there must have been something just before 2 o'clock that catalyzed it to be emitted at that time. Whatever it was, God, angels, cherubim, seraphim, whatever, but there must be something. Now, the Buddhists would say it doesn't have to be physical. It doesn't have to be mental. Buddhist causality includes physical causation, mental causation, but other types of conditioned phenomena that are neither physical nor mental. So Buddhism is not dualistic. It's pluralistic. So I've already given one really good example. Information. It's not mental. It's not physical but it certainly has causal efficacy, right? And then other examples, time. This is a Buddhist view. Time itself is impermanent. It can be directly experienced. It's not mental, it's not physical, and time has causal efficacy. So, and, but it's pluralistic, and it's wide open. That was not an inclusive set. Like, okay, now the conversation is over. So, but the Buddhist view, and then I'll just return back to out here, is that if that photon was emitted at 2 o'clock, there had to be an immediately preceding cause, something catalyzing, something triggering it. You may not be able to find it, but, and this is a logical thing, and it makes sense, true or false, it makes sense, and that is if there were nothing just prior to 2 o'clock that catalyzed, triggered that photon to emerge, then Either photons should be spewing out all the time or never. But they don't spew out all the time and they don't spew out never. Uranium spews out photons. And so if it happens at some time and not another time, there must have been something different at 2 o'clock versus 2.05 when no photon was emitted. So logically it makes sense. And I think quantum physicists would say, yes, that makes sense, but we just don't see any evidence that that's true because we looked and we don't see Having said that, though, can the physicist, as a physicist, measure anything that's not physical? And the answer is no. Physicists, as physicists, are professionally trained to measure the physical. So if there are causes that, that, that are not physical, the physicists won't know about it. Any more than neuro neuroscientists know about the substrate consciousness. How are you going to find the substrate consciousness in the brain? Or behavior? So imagine a person sitting and just resting in samadhi. Not much behavior taking place. And then what are you going to find? You'll find something in the brain, 
But you, what you find in the brain may be very similar to what you see in the brain when the person's deep asleep. Right? So what does that really tell you? Kind of nothing at all about the substrate consciousness, let alone whether it precedes this life, comes after this life. So I think it was in that same conference where we, we did have a neuroscientist. And I said, you know, if there is any continuity of consciousness prior to conception and after death, the neuroscientist would be the last one to figure it out. You know. I mean, if the train is coming from the, from the east and you're looking west, you'll learn about the train when it bumps into the back of your head. That is, the neuroscientists will learn about the substrate consciousness when they die. <laughs> oh, Lasso, from anything, we still have some minutes. Yeah, we have quite a few minutes. What's coming up from the floor? Let's say left, left hemisphere. Anything coming up this side? Questions, comments, insights? Go ahead, go ahead, Mark. Um, I have a question about a practice that I think could supplement what we've been working on. Something it's a practice we've been that could supplement. That supplement, okay, yeah. I believe you, you mentioned last time. Yeah. Um, and it's the practice of just observing, observing the sensations in, your, in the area of your chest. Um, which, is this a, a shamatha practice in of itself? It would seem that it would be. And then it also seems that the same way that when you're breathing, that has a lot of, or watching your breath, that has a lot of benefits for you just calming your, your system, but the same would be true um, observing, observing here as well. <coughs> I was just wondering what, what you thought about integrating, integrating this yeah. in with the others. From all of the teachings I've heard, and of course many teachings I haven't heard, I don't know anything about them, uh, but all the teachings I have heard, I've never heard of any, any Lama or any text that I've read or even heard about that said, okay, here's a shamatha practice, focus on your heart. It actually, as tactile sensations or the, bumping, the thumping, the beating of your heart. Uh, they don't teach it, and I think they don't teach it for a good reason. Yeah. If you're especially as a beginner, relative beginner, you don't want a lot of coarse energy come slamming into the heart. That's, a, that's an organ we need for a long time, and we don't want to be ramming a lot of energy into it, because actually there, there are physiological effects when you focus your attention intensely in your body. It's been known for years from bio biofeedback. Focus really intently on your fingertip, the capillaries open, and the temperature of your fingertip goes up. And that's fingertip. That's, that's um, how do you say, very safe. Nobody's had their fingertip just burst open like a little volcano. And, oh, I did too much. You know. Suck in the blood. Doesn't happen. Just warms up. Capillaries open, but they don't, you know, go like Mount Vesuvius. So that's a good thing. Focus on the heart could be a bit dicey. Not such a good idea. Tummy, safer, right? Rise and fall of the tummy. Uh, there are, so if one just wants to lightly touch there or scan through it, not a problem. But I would not suggest spending a lot of time just focusing intently with a lot of concentration right there on the tactile sensations. Now, as you well know, because you've heard it before, there's a legitimate and very deep and very powerful shamatha practice of focusing on an orb of light in your heart chakra. Yeah, that's, that's classic. I mean, Tibetan Buddhist. Classic. Very powerful. It's powerful like nitroglycerin is pow powerful. Handle it well, and you can get to blow up just what you want to blow up. Don't handle it well, obvious. So if one does this poorly, visualizing an orb of light, sometimes uh, five-colored light, like a little pearl of, of radiating, glistening, effervescent, uh, like refracted light from a little orb of light at the heart. 
Uh, it's very profound. Five lights, a lot of symbolism there, right in the center of the heart chakra, big heart chakra, big powerful. Do that with a very pure mind, very relaxed mind, gentle mind, loving mind, softly going in, relaxation, stability, vividness, not seizing up, really powerful, really powerful, really good practice. Because what's that doing? It's drawing your prana right into the heart chakra, and that's exactly where they're going to go when your coarse mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. So it's giving it a great big turbo, turbo boost prana-wise by focusing there luminously, nature of substrate consciousness luminosity, right in the middle of your heart chakra. Really powerful. Do it with some aggression, with frustration, with ego, pushing hard, pushing hard. You actually could give yourself a heart attack or fibrillation, uh, arrhythmia. You really don't want that. So if so, that's why I don't teach it. I, don't, I do not encourage people to practice here. It's a very good practice, but for that, I would say have, suggest have a very accomplished shamatha meditation teacher guiding you and monitoring you. So as soon as you go astray, if you do, right there to bring you back. Okay? Good. Very, very good. Okay? Read another one. I seem to understand the teachings on a cognitive level. They make sense, but I don't feel like this understanding is having an effect within me. I don't feel that I'm realizing what I'm knowing. For instance, I understand the concepts of impermanence, etc., non-self, and so forth, yet I don't feel like it's budging my deep-seated, grasping attachment to self. It seems like the ego is too strong for me to break through without achieving shamatha without miraculously achieving shamatha. Okay. So P.S. is having songs in your head while walking around a form of rumination. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, although I haven't achieved nirvana, but I'm still having songs going. <laughs> oh, so. Well, I think this is a very clear and accurate description and probably a rationale for practicing Vipassana for more than one week. <laughs> And having said that, uh, I'll quote the, the, the Lama from whom I first learned Shamatha, and actually, for that matter, first learned Vipassana, Geshe Ngawan Taige, Library of Tibetan, Ar- Tibetan Works and Archives. Um, an absolutely marvelous, marvelous teacher, human being, really wonderful. And he was the one, because he taught us the whole Lamrim. Boy, when he taught Shamatha, he meant it. He really meant it. And you might remember the story when he said, oh, let's practice a little bit, shall we? Remember the story? Yeah, let's practice a little bit. And so there were about eight of us in this one-year class. And Kushu Shabarambache was the interpreter. You remember Shabarambache? Best interpreter probably on the planet at that time. And he was really good. And so there we are. So all those happy little chipmunks like me, you know, 21-year-old chipmunks. Said, oh, we're going to practice together. Oh, good. Let's, this will be fun. And he sat there for three hours. Man, was that not fun. <laughs> After about the first 10 minutes, the knees starting to rupture, the back... You know, feeling you're looking at major lifelong paralysis here. And this, the lama whose body was just like a, like a rock. Just Three hours later, he comes out, happy smile. <laughs> and you know, we're metaphorically writhing on the ground in agony. Shamad not so easy. That was old school. That's old school. Outstanding scholar, accomplished meditator, heart of gold. They were amazing. They really were. That was old school. They weren't rushing through. 
taking it step by step. Real lama. And he made the comment, if you, practice, if you achieve shamatha, achieve shamatha. Vashana is easy. The realization, the real transformation, is easy. Yeah. So this is true. Practicing, and having said that, now we just have a nice gradient, a nice smooth spectrum. The more relaxed, stable, and clear your mind is, the more effective your shamatha is going to be. Just that simple. And if you sit down and your mind is ruminating, 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 you can call it Dzogchen, Mahamudra, anything you like. It's still crap. So there we are. Okay? And yes, music, I would say, yep, that's, that's rumination. That's the lyrics <laughs> of rumination. Oh, yeah, back to the floor. Anything coming up? Anything, uh, right hemisphere. Anything over here? Yes, there Microphone coming. Um, when I do um, focus on the nature of the mind yeah. and nothing really happens, um, do I just hang around in this space of mind or do I have to watch more closely? Maybe I don't notice um, distraction mm -hmm. or is it just okay for a while? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes there's just nothing. Yeah. It seems. Yeah, very good, very good. And I'm sure you're not alone. I've heard, I've heard this comment many times, I've taught this many times, and it's a common experience, and it's not a bad experience. It's not like, oh, my goodness, you're practicing wrongly. It's not true. Um, so you remember the, the analogy of the cockroaches in the refrigerator? You know that one, yeah? Okay. So you turn on the light, because I used to live in a place near Berkeley where lots of cockroaches. You turn on the light, they all scurry under the refrigerator, right? Turn off the light, they all come out to play, right? So when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, Right? The cockroaches are all over the place. <laughs> rumination, rumination, rumination. Like, how you doing there? How you doing? How, you, you really suck at meditation now. We really, really suck. You probably suck worse than everybody else in the room. Right? <laughs> you know, cockroaches crawling all over you when you're mindfulness of breathing. And then finally you get to settling the mind and say, okay, cockroaches, what was that you were saying? <laughs> They're really obnoxious. You not only have cockroaches in your mind, you, ha you have obnoxious cockroaches. They don't even come out when you want to play. So, you, and you remember the, the metaphor. It's a nice metaphor. Remember the bashful maiden? The bashful maiden. Maiden is a, I'll, I'll give it. It's a nice one, and it's classic. It's about a thousand-year-old metaphor from the Mahamudra tradition. And it comes, as I recall, Geshe Rapta taught it to me about oh, 37 years ago, something like that, um, in Penjanabhaji's text on Mahamudra. Glupa text, but it's Mahamudra. It goes way back to classical India. And I'll give the short version, and that is you have a player. So there's a player right there, that, that guy, Nicola. You know. handsome, young, handsome young man. You know. And so I'm just, I'm just teasing. But, you know, handsome young man, and he's out on the prowl looking for attractive young ladies. And then he sees one walking across the courtyard. And, <laughs> you know, He's kind of like, it's laser vision, and he's, looking, he's really peering at her. And she's bashful. She's a maiden, which means a maiden just means a young lady, preferably a pretty one. And, but she's bashful. <laughs> Otherwise, why would he ogle her? You know, like, like that. So he's really giving her the eyeball. Like, whoa. You know, maybe stripping her with his eyes. And she's bashful. So as soon as she feels the intensity of his gaze on her, what does she do? She disappears. 
She's bashful. She doesn't like that kind of scrutiny. She doesn't like that kind of scrutiny. I have to tell you, it's really sweet. One of my teachers, woman teacher, Saiki Damala. Uh, she's Tata. She's marvelous. She really she's been my Lama for oh, about 30 years now. About 30 years, almost exactly. She's one, one year older than the holiness, so she's like my, my Dharma mother. When she was young, like 16, 17, she was breathtakingly beautiful. I've seen photos. Any man would say, wow, she's, she, she was just gorgeous. You know? And she was traveling with her uncle, Dejun Rinpoche. He was an accomplished yogi scholar, really one of the greatest lamas in the Sakya tradition. And so she had him as her own mentor, her, her lama. And they were traveling from Kham, which is the, the, the wild country of eastern Tibet, cowboys and that, and that. And they're traveling to Sakya, which is the headquarters of their, of their whole order, to meet with the head of the, the, head of the tradition, the Sakya Tinsin. This was in Tibet about 50 years ago, no longer than 50 years ago, more, like, more than 60 years ago. And she was traveling across the country in this little caravan with her uncle and a few other people, monks and so forth. But she's this dazzlingly gorgeous 16-year-old. And she was so naive. She said that, uh, as she was traveling along, she said, one after another, these young men kept on coming up to me, and I didn't know why. It's kind of like, why are they paying attention to me? I can tell you. <laughs> you know, they want something. <laughs> so she was a bashful maiden. And then she, she made her way to Sakya. And then she met another, literally, I mean, you wouldn't believe it, a handsome young prince. She really did. She met a handsome young prince. Uh, Sakya was He was really like, he was aristocracy. He was like a prince. The, the person who is to be the next head of the Sakya order. The whole story there, I won't go into it further. This is all tangent on bashful maidens and to Berger's question. <laughs> but she was one bashful maiden. She was one bashful maiden. And she is one just incredibly beautiful human being and lama. And she's a woman. She's a beautiful woman at the age of 78, maybe 77, something like that. So, so what to do? Finally, I get back to you. Answer. When you're attending to the space of the mind and you're seeing nothing, then on the one hand, look a little bit more closely because what you're attending to is a space of the mind, and I will suggest as a proposal, space of the mind is not nothing. It's something. And in fact, it's impermanent. Just like the space between you and me, this visual space between you, you and me, is not nothing. It's the barnang, barnam ki namka, the space that appears in between, where you appear and where I feel I am looking from, and we can see it, and it's impermanent in the Buddhist view. And so simply, just as the space of visual perception, the space in which colors and shapes arise, is a space, and it is impermanent, and it is real, likewise the mental space is impermanent, it's real, and it's something, which means it has characteristics. And what are they? Well, for, for, for starters, is it flat or is it three-dimensional? Is it black or does it have a color? Is it big or does, is it small? Does it have shape? Does it have periphery? Does it have a center? A lot of questions one can pose. And so then you, as, and again, as a nice little leaping off place. If, if, you know, as you're gazing at me, I gaze at you. Look now, just focus your attention just midway to about, what, three, three meters in front of you, right at that space, and see that visual space 
does it have any characteristics at all? Or only an absence of all characteristics, which means it would really be nothing at all. So I won't have a whole dialogue with you right now, but that, that's a question you can answer. And you answer it by looking at it. See, it's transparent. That's, that's a quality. It's transparent. I can see it's transparent. I can look right through it. And so forth. And then you can, you can maybe find other characteristics as well. So one possibility is just take an interest in the space. Since the object is the space of the mind and whatever arises within it, if nothing that you can see arises within it, then attend to what's left. Attend closely to the space of the mind. It's the Dhamma, the dhamma Dhatu, the relative Dhamma Dhatu. Right? And that's something. It's one of the 18 elements. It must be something, just like the other six Dhatus of the domains of experience. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is, and in fact it's a possibility that's a certainty, so a, a possibility of 100%, is that there are things taking place there. There are things. Just as if you take a, uh, a teaspoon of sw swamp water, just water from a swamp, and you place it on a little glass and you look at it, and you say, yeah, but it's clear, there's nothing there. It's just clear, it's just clear water. There's nothing in it. It's just, there's nothing in it. Well, yeah, with your naked eye, you won't see anything. But if you could look with even a moderate t microscope, you say, oh, there's all kinds of stuff in there, right? And so what you've done, you've increased vividness. That's, ca that's called the technological increase of vividness through magnification, right? And so you attend more closely and you say, oh, there are living organisms there. And then increase the, ma the magnification said, oh, they're made up of individual cells. Increase, oh, they're made up of molecules, atoms, elementary particles. Whoa, now we've gotten really high resolution. Right? It's all a matter of increasing vividness. So as you're attending to that space of the mind, attend a bit more closely. And make sure that you're, that you're open to observing whatever arises. And not just discursive thoughts. In other words, not just mental conversation. Maybe little flickerings of images, which are nonverbal. Maybe a desire, maybe a feeling. Anything that emerges there, that's grist for the mill, that is, is a suitable object for the practice. And then I go back to Tsongkhapa. You know, when, I look, when I want brilliance, then I look for Tsongkhapa. What did he have to say? And in his discussion of shamatha, I'm sure it was there, uh, he said that when you become more and more adept at this practice and vividness, namely vividness increasing, you will not only be able to witness the emergence of thoughts, you'll be able to witness thoughts that are about to emerge. You'll be able to observe it in a, a, a movement. Uh, and here's the image I like, which is it's just metaphor, but I like it a lot. And that is, imagine looking at a smooth pond. Smooth pond. Right? And you're just gazing there, so the whole surface, very glassy. And then you see that the, the surface tension of the water, the surface of the water kind of rises up as a fish comes right towards the surface, and it does so. The surface tension of the water makes the, the water actually rise, right? The surface tension. So the surface of the water rises, but the fish doesn't quite break the surface. Comes very close, the water rises, and then the fish just goes right down again. Okay? That was a fish about to break the surface, but didn't quite. So likewise, you can have thoughts that are about to merge, and then they don't. They're about to articulate, to become crystallized, and then they don't. Okay? So final point on this one, and that is if you would like to have 
the space of the mind more richly populated. So you have more stuff to look at. Make it more interesting. Then, lighten up. Softer. Softer. Don't be like this rascal here. Laser eyes looking at all the women. Don't have a fierce gaze. Don't, have, don't be too disciplined. Don't be, don't be like a sniper. You want to shoot the thoughts. Soft. So like Nicola, when he gets really smart with the girls, he looks... Soft touch. Very soft. Casual. Like, okay, cockroaches, I'm a Buddhist. Don't worry. You can come out. I won't smack you. Just want to see you play. Or here's the nice, we'll end on this image. It's a lovely image. It's also from the, I think from the same text. And I'll, I'll make it gender specific. Um, but it's such a nice image. Of an old woman like an old grandma or even a great-grandmother, gra- great very old woman, watching other people's children play. So you're not that old yet, but you can, you've seen elderly women. So, and, and keep it, so we, we just know, that, you know, if with an old grandma, we know that her motivation is not going to be bad. If she's watching children, it's just because she likes watching children. So we don't have any qualms, right? So that's why I say, okay, it's innocent. But she's interested. She just likes to watch children play. But, she, but the mothers are there. She's sitting on a bench, like in one of those many, many parks you have in Hamburg. But imagine some old grandma just watching. She, maybe her husband's dead. She has a lot of time. And she likes watching children because they're fun to watch. You know? So she sits, on the, she sits on the bench, and the mothers are all there, and they have their cell phones. So if anything goes wrong, the mothers call 911, call emergency, whatever. They'll take care of it. You know? So the grandmother can just watch the children with interest. But she's just a, a, just a little old lady, so nobody worries about her. She doesn't catch anybody's attention. Just the opposite of Nicola. <laughs> She's not like an old lady at all. You know? So just an old lady, just very gently, just soft gaze, a little, maybe a bit of smile, watching the children play. One starts crying. She just smiles. It'll be over, It'll be over soon. Don't worry. You'll get old and die. It'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that gentle look. It's interest, it's kind of enjoying, but so soft that the mothers don't notice her, the kids don't notice her. She's an old lady, she's, she's harmless, no problem. So it'd be like an old lady watching the children of your mind play. It's very soft. Okay? Jolly good. Six o'clock, dinner time. Enjoy. Enjoy.